Hello, you lovely rats. It's me again, Paulie from Rat Depot. It's the 10th of August, 2023 for me. I don't know about you. And uh, the weather's really nice. I'm sweating my fucking tootsies off. And uh, I'm here to narrate a letter called I Heard You Like Houses, which was originally published on the 14th of June, 2023. So making big moves, eh? This first section is on the Overlook Hotel. Uh, so naturally, spoilers for The Shining from 1980 will follow. And listen, boo-hoo, it isn't a house. Paul, you lied to us all, that's literally not a house, you're terrible, etc. Silence. They lived in it as a permanent residence, and as such, it counts, in my opinion. The Overlook Hotel from Kubrick's The Shining is a haunting, empty hotel that contorts and expands before us, presenting us with rooms that have no proximal ties to anything else. Where is the kitchen in relation to the dining areas? Where is the grand room where Jack writes on the typewriter obsessively? Where is the ballroom? The modern tiled toilets where Jack meets Delbert Grady? The overlook feels massive both inside and out, the hedge maze outside mirroring the winding corridors that Danny explores on his trike. The sharp turns without being able to see what's coming both inside and out heighten the suspense of what I consider the best horror film of all time. But where is the Overlook Hotel? Well, the original hotel that Stephen King based the novel on was the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. King recalls meeting a friendly bartender called Grady, who became the former caretaker in the book, and dining with his wife in a completely empty hotel with grand rooms. He had nightmares that night of his child running, screaming down the corridors and waking up in a sweat. And so The Shining was born. But that's not the hotel we see in the film. External shots were filmed at the Timberline Lodge on Mount Hood in Oregon. But that's not the interiors we see in the film. Those were inspired by the Ohorny Hotel in Yosemite National Park, California. But the Ohorny interiors are not the interiors we actually see in the film either. The hotel interior was a massive set built entirely at the Elders Tree Studios in Hertfordshire, which is England, to my international rats. So in summary, the Overlook Hotel was a hotel based on somewhere the writer stayed in Colorado, the interiors of a hotel the director stayed in in California, the exteriors of a hotel in Oregon, and the lots of a studio in southern England. The result is a hotel that doesn't actually feel real, because it isn't. This feeling is deliberately amplified by Kubrick, the opening shot of the hotel doesn't show a hedge maze outside the hotel because there isn't one at the Timberline Lodge, adding to the mysterious, ever-shifting nature of the complex. The video below has two parts and goes into detail on the various deliberate inaccuracies of the Overlook's layout. Given Kubrick's reputation as a meticulous, obsessive filmmaker, these inaccuracies being an accident are almost impossible, especially given how obvious some of them are. I thoroughly recommend this video, but in summary, despite the hotel being depicted as an authentic, realistic hotel rather than a more traditional gothic horror house with trapdoors and jars of eyeballs. There are subtle illusions and inexplicable design choices that add to the sense of unease the viewer has trying to navigate the hotel. It's also wild that someone made the hotel into a Duke Nukem level. Blasting those creepy twins with a gun has never been easier. Next is The Farmer's House. Terence Malick's Days of Heaven from 1978 is, amongst other things, very beautiful. The film starts in Chicago in 1916. The landscape is grimy, hot and sweaty as Bill, played by Richard Gore, is caught in an argument with Richard Gore? 
I mean, Richard Gere, Paul. You fucking idiots. It's Richard Gere. I don't know who Richard Gore is. Um, he's caught in an argument with his boss. It's too noisy for us to hear what happens, but the heat of the mill rises as Bill accidentally kills the pit boss. Fleeing the scene, Bill, his girlfriend Abby, and his sister Linda escape by rail to the south to work in the wheat fields of the Texas Panhandle. Like that really weird video of Logan Paul pretending to see colour for the first time, the pallet of Days of Heaven then erupts as the three of them are pulled by the steam train across a seemingly endless rural landscape. There's a feeling, as the train cuts across land and sky, that if they went any further, they would blur into the canvas and never be seen again. And then they arrive. The only marker in sight, the only sign of human interference on the horizon, is the house, Belvedere. An oddly shaped Victorian mansion, the house belongs to the unnamed Farmer, an increasingly infirm rich dude who begins to fancy Abby. This leads to all sorts of cockery, fuckery and bamboozlement that I won't spoil, but aside from all the beautiful scenery, our eyes cannot help but fixate on the house. The workers in the fields, as they stand up to catch their breath during the long hours of their day, see the house. Bill, as he lies with Abby in the fields, an employee but also a friend to the farmer, sees the house. It is a tether to humanity, but also a reminder of the power dynamic of the job. You orbit the house, your labour paid for the house, and you will likely never step foot inside despite there being nowhere else to go. It commands attention on the horizon as a triumphant, albeit lonely, trophy. The farmer's illness and his desire to settle down before it's too late show the emptiness of his success and the fleeting nature of all that he has gained. My cat's here. Hey, Goop. Hello. By 1916, Belvedere's form and style had fallen out of fashion, a status symbol of the previous century. The structure itself, then, a legacy of old money and the death of agrarian society. The billowing grey smoke of the steam train Bill and Co ride in on is an industrious interruption, a message from the future. Belvedere becomes even more interesting when you learn that it was actually a fully functioning house, built in plywood by production designer Jack Fisk. Rather than a flat 2D facade, the house is a cheap husk of the real thing. It bleeds light. In some shots you can see sunlight beaming through one side and out the other, like the house itself was just a window into another room. In terms of artistic reference for the house and its surroundings, there are two paintings that stand out. Edward Hopper's House by the Railroad from 1925, above two, and Christina's World by 1948 by Andrew Wyeth, directly above. And you can see why. And look, I'm not an art historian or a smart person, so don't take my word for it. Nestor Almendros, the cinematographer for Days of Heaven, previously stated that Wyeth and Hopper were the primary reference points for his approach to the film. Two things jump out from the paintings above. The railroad swallowing the bottom half of the house, cutting into the dreamy blues, and the girl seemingly so far from her home, her perspective stretched by her condition, unable to walk. The light in Wyatt's painting feels similar to the use of light in Days of Heaven, as Almendros and Malik were committed to only using natural light in the film, often filming during the soft light of sunrise and sunset for day scenes and candlelight for darker scenes. The Belvedere plays a crucial role in anchoring the film in the ambiance of these paintings, the beautiful warm light of day and the precarious nature of the things humans covet. To come so close to love, to comfort, to security, to experience our own Days of Heaven, however short-lived. The farmer says, I always thought that being alone was just something that a man had to put up with. It was like I just got used to it. And that's the end of this letter. 
Um, thanks very much for listening. I'll uh, catch you again. Be well. Love. Bowley.